Uh, We'll read from Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16 this morning uh, for the sermon. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you, by your Spirit, the Spirit of the living Christ, would enlighten our minds to the things in your Word. Teach us and help us to follow Him as He has commanded to your glory, we pray in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a joy to be worshiping here this morning. I trust that uh, Dr. Dyer um, preached the Word faithfully last week in my absence, and I'm grateful to have that time off for rest and relaxation. And uh, as we are in between uh, books of the Bible this morning, I thought we would spend a few weeks, probably three weeks, in the Great Commission. Uh, we wrapped up the letter to the Romans a few weeks ago, and uh, so before we dive into the Gospel of John, I thought we would just have some course correction, if needed, and look at the Great Commission of the Church of Jesus Christ. And in light of the uh, ever-increasing instability of the world in which we live, I thought this would be another good reason for this. And also to ask the question, what in the world is the church of Jesus Christ supposed to be doing? And we always need to come back to that and answer that question and see where we are and, and where we should be. And so as we look at that over the next three weeks, today we're going to consider uh, the foundation for the Great Commission, the basis for the mission that Christ has given to His church. And that is found in verse 18, where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The foundation, the very basis for the work of the church of Jesus Christ is based on the lordship of Jesus Christ. This endowment of this cosmic authority granted to him after the resurrection by his heavenly father. You know, Matthew's Gospel, it it opens up with this theme that Jesus is King. King of the Jews, no doubt. And so Matthew shows how Jesus, through His lineage, is the Son of David. And here at the end, after the resurrection, Matthew ends his Gospel with what is basically the coronation of Christ. He would, from this point, ascend to the right hand of God the Father and sit on the throne of David. And so as we talk about this authority, then I'll consider three headings based on the word, and then we'll make about four applications after that. So this morning, as we consider this cosmic authority, first of all, I'd like for us to note that this authority was anticipated 
by the believers in the Old Testament. And the reason they anticipated this authority is because the Bible talked about it in the Old Testament. You know, from the very beginning, when God made man, He created Adam and Eve, and He said in Genesis 1, in verse 26, that uh, He would make man in His own image, and man was to have what over the earth? Dominion. And He was to have authority, dominion over the earth. And we turn to Genesis 3, and we see what happens. Eve, through the deception of the serpent, she took the forbidden fruit, ate of it, gave it to her husband, they ate of it, and they fell into sin, and all mankind with them. And so God pronounced the curse on the woman, on the serpent, on the man, and even the ground. And so He he told Adam, He said, "It, it would be by the sweat of your brow that you would eat bread. And so work is not a result of the fall or curse. Work is good. God created it. He gave it to us. But work is cursed because of the fall. And so the writer in Ecclesiastes 1.15 picks up on this curse and he notes that not everything is right about the world in which we live. He says there, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And so you and I feel this on a daily basis. Things don't go as planned. Weeds and thistles come out of the ground. And work, and indeed life itself, is hard because of the fall. But God hasn't left us there. And He didn't leave Adam and Eve there. He gave them hope. He preached the gospel to them in Genesis 3, 15. Because He said that this seed would come from the woman. And this seed that would come from the woman is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He said about this seed that He will crush the serpent's head. The serpent, through that crushing would bruise the heel of that seed, and so the destruction of Satan and his work would come at a cost to this seed of the woman. We know that's the the cross of Christ. And so by the time we get to Genesis 12, God, He calls Abraham out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and He gives this promise again. He expands upon it. He says to to, uh, Abraham, He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And he says, through you, there's going to be the seed that will come. Through you, the nations will be blessed. Not just Israel, but the nations. And so by the time we turn to Genesis, or rather, uh, the Psalms, the 22nd Psalm, it says in verse 27, about the Messiah who would come, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. What a promise about the Messiah to come. And so in Psalm 72, about His dominion, it says He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And remember in the prophets, in the prophets, there is this theme of the Messiah and His kingdom to come. And that theme is that His kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom kingdom. Daniel 2.44, if you don't remember anything today other than this, that would be good enough. Daniel 2.44 talks about the longevity of the kingdom of this Messiah to come. And it says there, in the days of these kings, and there's no doubt about which kings it's talking about. It's talking about the days of the Romans, the first century. And the days of these kings, the God of the heavens, will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. 
It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So Christ has come. He's established His kingdom, which is growing. It has endured the first 300 years by persecution on the part of the Romans. It has outlasted nations such as China, the Turks themselves. It's here today. And it will continue. Isaiah 9-7 spoke of the growth of Christ's kingdom. It said of the increase of His government, the government of Christ, and peace, there will be no end. So the question is, do, do we believe that ourselves today? And so by the time you turn to the pages of the New Testament, there were those, you know, it was like, it was like this overlapping of the Old Testament and the New Testament because Christ had come. He was born of the woman or about to be born of the woman. There were those anticipating His birth. Simeon in Luke 2, I love what, what Simeon says there in Luke 2 about the Messiah. In verse 25 it says, Luke tells us there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And of course he later says, now I can go and depart in peace. My eyes have seen this Messiah. And so in Jesus' ministry, He talks about Abraham. In John 8.56, Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced to see his day and was glad. So Abraham anticipated the coming of the Messiah. David too, he prophesied about Jesus who would come. Peter makes this point in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon. In verse 34, he said, For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so as we think about this, this cosmic authority, this all-encompassing authority that has been granted to the Lord Jesus after His resurrection, this was anticipated, this was prophesied, it was talked about in the Old Testament. And my point in bringing that up is just to note that this is not plan B. That what Jesus is doing here in the Great Commission is not an afterthought. This has always been the plan. It has always been part of God's plan. And for Christ to fulfill what God had promised through His covenant with Abraham. That Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. And the way that he would be a blessing to the nations is that his descendant, the Lord Jesus, would bless the nations. The Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And so second, as we think about this cosmic authority granted to Christ, this all-encompassing authority is demonstrated by Jesus' post-resurrection appearance. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and appeared to His disciples demonstrates that this authority has been given unto Him. Now how can I say that? It might be an inference in our passage from this morning. But think about what Matthew covers in this whole chapter, chapter 28. In verse 1 he notes that it was the third day of the week. And so Jesus was raised on the third day. And this was according to what Jesus had promised. And that was according to what 
the prophet Jonas said. And this proves that Jesus was truly dead. His body was truly dead in the grave. And yet his body did not see the cave, just as it was promised in the Old Testament. And then this shows that Jesus overcame death. That he conquered death, that he came forth from the grave, just as he had said. And so he overcame the curse of sin. The wages of sin is what? It's death. And so by overcoming death, Jesus overcomes sin. Think about the place of his appearance there in verse 16. If you have your Bible open, you'll see they went away to Galilee. Just as Jesus had said, Galilee was sort of a ministry hub for Jesus as he went about the circuit where he preached and taught and healed people. And Galilee, earlier in the gospel, in chapter 4, I think it is, is called Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus would often go to the fringe of where the Jewish people resided, and he ministered to those in that area, foreshadowing what would happen later. That is that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. But more than that, if you look at verse 16, they went to the mountain which Jesus had appointed them. In the Bible, in God's dealing with men, mountains are significant. They signify God's sovereignty, His majesty, His authority. And often when God would add to His revelation or there would be some dynamic transition in revelation or the people of God, He would meet them at a mountain. Think about where he went or where he led his people out of Egypt. Just to the mountain. In Exodus 20, right? He gave them the Ten Commandments, establishing his rule over them, his law. And of course, the temple itself, the Jerusalem temple in the Old Testament, was built on Mount Zion. And Jesus and his ministry often taught from mountains. We have the Sermon on the Mount where he establishes, as it were, predicts his kingship. He was transfigured on the mountain. And of course, in Matthew 24, there's that sermon. We call it the Mount Olivet Discourse because he gave it from a mountain. And here in our text, he gives these words, this, these marching orders to his disciples, to his church on a mountain. And so he is signifying a major event in God's timetable. What is that? Well, he's noting that he is establishing his kingdom and his sovereignty and his rule. I want to ask you a question. What is the extent of Christ's rule according to what he says here? Look at it. Verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority in heaven and on earth. He doesn't say all authority in Jerusalem. He doesn't say some authority in certain places on the earth. No, all authority in heaven and on earth. And this is significant. Um, in Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus made this prayer. And he began his prayer like this. He said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. 
acknowledging His Heavenly Father's universal cosmic authority. His sovereignty over heaven and earth. And so He prays to His Father according to His Father's will, no doubt. that He knows that since His Father is the one who is in charge of heaven and earth, He can go to Him, He can pray to Him. And if He prays according to His Father's will, His Father will hear from heaven and answer that prayer. Not only in heaven, but on earth and change things according to His will on earth. And so Jesus prays that. And in fact, when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate in John 19 verse 10 said to Jesus, Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus says this, you could, not, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been granted to you by whom? His Father. And so what is my point? The point is that Jesus now has the same power and authority and sovereignty as His Heavenly Father. We need to understand that Jesus is speaking as the God-man. Remember Jesus, He was God incarnate took upon human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and so He's the God-man forever in that estate. He's exalted now, of course, but the point is that as the second person of the Godhead, Jesus has always had this authority. But as our mediator, as a reward for His work, His life, and His death, and His suffering in our place, He has now been granted the resurrection. He's been granted this kingship and lordship over all. That's what's going on. Hold your finger there and turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is uh, one of them. We call them minor and major prophets. He's one of the major prophets. And I think that's a reference to the length of those books in the Old Testament. But um, it comes after Ezekiel in case you're wondering. Daniel chapter 7. Um. This is amazing. We need to know what this says and what it means today. Uh, Daniel says in verse 13 of chapter 7, I was teaching or I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man. Who is that? That's Christ. Jesus referred to Himself as the Son of Man. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. We believe that's God the Father. And they brought Him near before Him. So I want you to understand something. The vision is future. This would happen later, after the incarnation and the work of Christ. And the picture is that the Son of Man, Jesus, is coming before the Ancient of Days. That's a reference to God. So He's ascending from, from earth to heaven before the Ancient of Days where God resides in heaven. Understand that picture. And then look at verse 14. After they brought him near before him, it says, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Isn't that glorious? The picture is the ascension of Christ after His resurrection. He goes up before the Ancient of Days, His Father, and He's given, He's granted this dominion, no doubt enthroned 
with it. And he says, Daniel, then to him was given this dominion. Now that's important because when you read uh, the Old Testament, remember the Old Testament was given to us in Hebrew and some Aramaic. And then uh, there were 70 men later who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And we call that the Septuagint for the 70 men who translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. So that the Greek world could read the Old Testament. Well, why am I telling you this? Because when you look at what Jesus says in the Greek in Matthew 8, uh, 28, 18, and then you look at the Greek Septuagint of Daniel 7, 14, it is a mirror. Listen to the way it's worded in the Greek. Uh, in, in Daniel 7, 14, it says, Then to him was given dominion and glory and authority. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, It has been given to me all authority in heaven and on the earth. Jesus is claiming this promise in Daniel 7, 14. So go back to Matthew 28 and you can see perhaps a little clearer even as to what is going on. Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's declaring to his disciples, ultimately to the world, it's been given to me. It's as good as done. Because what's going to happen after this? In a few days, he's going to go up into heaven and sit at the right hand of God the Father and sit, Acts chapter 2 says, on the throne of David. The throne of David is the kingdom's throne. Jesus' kingdom and His throne. And so we, we must understand that when Jesus says this, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. It means that Jesus is now king today. I like to say this because of the world from which I come. Maybe it's not true of you, but I, I was taught early on that um, Jesus will one day be king. The truth of the matter is, Jesus is not going to be king. He is king right now. He has been king for 2,000 years at His ascension, after His resurrection. And this means that He is sovereign. That He rules over heaven and earth. But not only that, we need to understand according to the context, He rules over sin. He conquered sin, Romans 6 tells us. Our old man was crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be done away with. He rules and reigns over death. I mean, that's obvious, right? He was raised from the dead. And just as He had promised in the upper room discourse in John 14, He says, because I live, you shall live also. And of course, He rules over Satan even now. In Hebrews 2.14 it says, Inasmuch as then the children have partaken of the flesh, or of flesh and blood, He Himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same that through death He might destroy Him who had power of death, that is, the devil. 1 John 3.8 says, For this purpose, for this reason, the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. The devil's doom is sure, as the old hymn says. And we don't deny the present activity of Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And yet 1 John 4, 4 says this to us. Greater is he that is in you 
than he who is in the world. We need to file that away. And also, this text here reveals to us that Jesus has power that he rules over all men whether they acknowledge it or not. Who is king? Jesus. Well, the third thing I want to bring from from this text is that, um, well, I shouldn't say from this text, but the rest of the Bible is that his all-encompassing authority is confirmed by his apostles. When you read the New Testament, you'll find this. I've got a lot of scripture this morning. Perhaps you can jot down the references. Uh, But whether you're looking at the Apostle Paul's writings, Peter's writings, uh, Hebrews, or John, they all remind us, by the inspiration of the Spirit, remember, that Jesus rules today. In Romans 1.4, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So God was telling the world that Jesus is the Son of God. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In Philippians 2, there's that glorious passage. Paul says in verse 9, Therefore God has also highly exalted Him, Jesus, and given Him the name which is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's been super exalted. Peter says this. And remember, by the way, Peter, at first he struggled when God said that the uh, gospel was to go to the Gentiles. Peter being a, a Jew, Christian Jew. Well, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. If He is Lord, He is royalty, He is King, and He's Christ, He's the Lord's anointed as such. In Acts 10 and verse 36, speaking of the nations in Cornelius' household, he says that Jesus is, is Lord of all. In Hebrews 2, 8, the writer says that the Father has left nothing that is not put under Him. But now we do not yet see all things put under Him. And so there's that, what we call the already not yet. Jesus is already King, but as far as that being manifested and set in order in time and space in this world, it hasn't all taken place. It's a progress. It's happening. John. You know, John wrote in tumultuous times where there was persecution. He was banned to the island of Patmos for following Jesus. And uh, the government was either about to persecute Christians or was in the midst of doing so. And so he writes... And he shows that Satan is actually behind those wicked governments that persecute God's people. Well, the very first chapter, it says this in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. 
Right now, and for 2,000 years, in fact, Jesus has been the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is our president's ruler. He's the Taliban's ruler. He's um, every government's ruler. We call him, and the Bible calls him, the king of kings. Revelation eleven fifteen. It says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And of course, Revelation 19, 16, it says that they were crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He's God Almighty, all-powerful, and He reigns from heaven. So I want to ask a question. When Jesus says here, all authority has been given to me, what does this mean for us today? So what? A long time ago, one of my professors in preaching said, you better, ask, you better answer that question in your sermon. So what? So I hope to do that. But when you think about it, Jesus has this all-encompassing cosmic authority in heaven and on earth. What does this mean for us today? There are four things that I can think of, and perhaps you can think of more. Number one, it means that Jesus' message is true. How do I get that? Well, as I already referred to Romans 1, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. He appears to His disciples here after the resurrection. It gives credence to the very words of Christ, His message, His sermons, His teachings. It gives credibility to Him. You know, one of the teachings of Christianity is that there is a day of judgment to come. And in Acts 17 and verse 31, the Apostle Paul in his sermon... He says, assurance of this judgment has been granted to us, quote, by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that there will be a judgment day to come. And so I'm saying that this gives credence and credibility to the veracity, the truthfulness of the words of Christ. His message, and the whole Bible for that matter, And since it means that everything Jesus has said is true, second, it means that we shall not fear. When Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, this isn't just filler for His sermon. It's the premise, it's the foundation, it's the basis for what He's going to say right after this. And today we're just considering, what does this mean? Well, it means that everything He has said is true, and since everything He said is true, we need not fear. We should be confident. We should carry out our callings as Christians with hope based on the promises of God. We, we look out into the world today, and uh, maybe you don't care what's going, up, going on in the world today, or maybe you're, you know, you're a very far right, right-hand conspiracy theorist or whatever, and, and you're worried. You're, you look out and you say, okay, everyone is taking counsel against God and His church, His people. Remember the second psalm. The rulers of the nations take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. And what does it say God does? He laughs. He laughs because their, their intent is futile. His promises are true. 
Jesus says, I hold you in my hand. My Father holds me in His hand. And no one can snatch you out of my hand. John 10. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, men try to kill the church. Evil regimes try to snuff the church from the earth. But as one early father said something to the effect, the more that you try to kill us, the more we grow. And what does Romans 8 say? It says, neither death nor life, principality or powers nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are promised that we won't suffer in this life. We are told that we will suffer as Christians. But we are also told there is purpose in the suffering. And as Jesus points out, as the New Testament points out, even though we suffer, even if we were to die for our faith, that death is the threshold into God's very presence. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, to go and be with Him forever, even in that intermediate state until our resurrected bodies are joined to our spirits. And there is joy in His presence, Psalm 16 says. An old Presbyterian, he probably wasn't old when he said it, but it was a long time ago, in the 1800s. James Henley Thornwell said this, If the church could be aroused to a deeper sense of the glory that awaits her, she would enter with a warmer spirit the struggles that are before her. I'll read it again. If the church could be aroused to a deeper sense of the glory that awaits her, she would enter with the warmer spirit the struggles that are before her. It takes faith to write that and to say that, to believe it. Do you fear? Do you fear life in this world? Do you fear life in our country as a Christian? Or maybe you just fear unexpected death, an automobile accident, finding yourself in ICU with COVID. We we shouldn't fear COVID. Now, as I've said many times, I don't want it. I don't think I've had it. I don't want it. And if I'm given, if if I get COVID, my faith will be put to the test, no doubt. But as Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So while I'm here, I'm going to live for Christ. If I, if I die, I gain something. Right? We shouldn't fear death as Christians. Even if it's martyr, whatever it may be. A third application here is that what Jesus says here, it answers this question. What right do we have to tell other people or to lead other people into the kingdom of God? What right do we have to speak to our fellow humans and say, unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're doomed. This answers that question. It's His right. It's not ours. We speak on behalf of Christ. Those who are gospel preachers are the ambassadors for Christ. And in one sense, we all are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We speak something for Christ in His name to lead our neighbors, our fellow workers, co-workers, our neighbors to Christ, our family members. It's His right. 
In Psalm 2 again, the Father says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for what? Your inheritance. Jesus' inheritance for his work as the mediator is the nations. Those Gentiles who come into his church as well as the Jewish people. And so he's going to, go say, he's going to say later on, go, make disciples of all nations. Have you noticed the connection there? Look at verse 18 again. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Look at verse 19. Go. And some translations have the therefore there. So based on this, do this. All authority has been granted unto me. I am the King and Lord of heaven and earth. You therefore go make disciples of all the nations. That's the connection. He's telling us, go out into the world and make my reign, my rule a reality. And here's how you do it. And by the way, the therefore also sheds light on His suffering, doesn't it? Why did Jesus become the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, and suffer and go to the cross and die the cursed death of the cross and suffer the wrath of God? He did it, Matthew one twenty one tells us, to save His people from their sins. That work of Jesus has to be applied to the lives of His chosen, and it is applied to His chosen through the preaching of the Gospel. So He says, go. And then last, it shows us that the mission He has given to us is possible. Some have talked about polishing the brass on a sinking ship. Well, if it were up to us, it would be impossible, but with God, what? All things are, are almost said impossible. Somebody slap me if I say that. With God, all things are possible. And so Jesus, He begins, He gives us this premise, this foundation, this basis that He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And then He says, go. But there's more to it than that. Think about it. He does it through the means of grace, through gospel preaching, by the power of His Spirit. We have access to that Spirit and the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ, we are told in Ephesians 1, is at work in you who believe. I can't raise a man from the dead. Jesus can and does. His Spirit can and does. I can't make a person believe the Gospel. Christ can. Christ does. And so we have this promise. We have this foundation and this basis. And so then how do we do this? Well, we'll talk about that next time, Lord willing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the comfort, the reminder that Christ is on His throne. Just as Isaiah, in times of trouble, had the vision and saw that You were on Your throne, we, we pray, O oh Father, that You would remind us that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and that Christ Himself reigns over heaven and earth. Help us to be His faithful disciples, we pray. In His name, Amen.